Well, if we could, uh, this evening, for uh, a short while, if we could turn back to that passage that we read in Matthew chapter 11. In the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 11. And if you read again at verse 25. Matthew 11 at verse 25. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the, the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, this evening we're continuing uh, our short series on what it means for us as a congregation to have a 2020 vision for our community. Because as we said last week, when we begin a new year, I don't know about you, but I feel tired and flat after the festive period. And with the nights that are still long and they're dark and the weather is constantly blowing a gale, it's hard to get motivated and enthusiastic uh, to do anything, especially to do with the gospel. But as we begin 2020, my burden is that as a congregation, we will seek to possess a 2020 vision for our community. Because as Paul reminds us, we must not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are only temporal, but the things that are unseen... They are eternal. We need to look at life and love life and live life with an eternal perspective. And you know, as a congregation, we need to possess this 2020 vision for our community. Because if we have no vision, and if we have no enthusiasm, if we have no zeal, if we have no passion for the gospel, then we have no future. We have no future. And as you know, the term 2020 vision, it's often used by opticians to describe uh, vision that has clarity and, and sharpness from uh, 20 feet away. And in fact, some of you, I mean, maybe most of you here this evening, you probably received a letter through the post today from Specsavers, and it had that very statement on it, 2020 vision. But you know, having 2020 vision doesn't necessarily mean that you have perfect vision. It only indicates the sharpness and the clarity of your vision. And that's what we need to have as we move forward into 2020. We need to have sharpness and clarity in our vision for our community. Now, as we considered last week, in order to have a 2020 vision for our community, we said that we need to live with a passionate pursuit for the glory of God. Because the glory of God, that's our chief end. That's what the Catechism reminds us, that the chief end of man, it's not to glorify and enjoy ourselves. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And from the example of Moses in Exodus 33, we discover that in order to have a passionate pursuit for the glory of God, we need to be praying just as Moses was, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. 
Like Moses, we need to have a longing to see the glory of God displayed in the lives of the people in this community. Therefore, in order to, in order to possess a 2020 vision, we need to live with a passionate pursuit for the glory of God. But this evening, I want us to suggest, secondly, that in order to possess a 2020 vision, we also have to have a greater grasp of the gospel of God. In order to have a 2020 vision, we need a passionate pursuit for the glory of God and a greater grasp of the gospel of God. A greater grasp of the gospel of God. And in these familiar words of, of Matthew 11, we find Jesus praying, we find him preaching, and we even find him pleading, all so that we will have a greater grasp of the gospel of God. And in this passage, verses 25 to 30, Jesus reminds us that the gospel is, first of all, a gracious call, then secondly, a godly choice, and then thirdly, a great command. The gospel is a gracious call, a godly choice, and a great command. So there are three headings this evening. So first of all, the gospel is a gracious call. The gospel is a gracious call. We're told in verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, for Christmas, I've received the gift of a book from uh, a well-known Hugh Ferrier, and it's a book that I read over the Christmas holidays. And it's a brilliant book called The Whole Christ. And it's a book by Sinclair Ferguson. And I, I, I mention it to you not only because I recommend that you read the book The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. I'll say it again. And you have to understand it. I not only recommend it, but I also, because this book, The Whole Christ, it deals with the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And as Sinclair Ferguson explains, the gospel is something that has been discussed and debated for centuries. But the historical basis for writing the book, The Whole Christ, it was a controversy about the gospel during the 18th century. A controversy called the Marrow Controversy. And the Marrow Controversy had originated during a meeting of the Ochterarder Presbytery on the 12th of February 1717. And it continued to rumble on for many years. But at that presbytery meeting in the rural village of Ochterarder, hidden away in the hills of Perthshire, it had this massive impact upon the church in Scotland and even further afield. Because the major question which the Marrow controversy raised was, how are we to communicate the gospel? More specifically, the Marrow controversy was about our understanding of God's grace in the gospel and how that gospel should be proclaimed to lost sinners. Now, Thomas Boston, I'm sure you've heard of Thomas Boston, he was ministering in Ettrick in the borders at the time and he was a great defender of the free offer of the gospel and a key player in this debate within the church over the Marrow controversy. And Thomas Boston, he's well known for saying that Christ is to be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. 
Christ is to be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ is the gospel. The incarnation, the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Therefore, says Boston, Jesus Christ is to be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. Of course, I recommend that you read the whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson because as Sinclair Ferguson suggests, if we want to know the gospel and understand how to communicate the gospel, it's always helpful to go back to Jesus and his teaching and ask, well, how did Jesus preach about himself? How did Jesus himself preach his own gospel? And this is the passage that Sinclair Ferguson takes us to, to give us an example of how Jesus himself engaged in evangelistic preaching. And as we said, in these familiar words of Matthew 11, we find Jesus praying, preaching, and even pleading. And it's also that we will have a greater grasp of the gospel of God. And in verses 25 and 26, we hear Jesus praying. He's praying here to his Father, and he's praying according to the gracious will of his Father. And God's gracious will, he says, is to hide the gospel from the wise and the prudent, but to reveal the gospel to little children. And why God does this? Well, we'll consider that in a moment. But as Jesus prays according to his Father's gracious will, he says that his Father has hidden the things of the kingdom of God and the gospel, and he has hidden it from the wise and the understanding, or the wise and the prudent. But he has revealed the kingdom of God and the gospel, as he says there, to little children. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that people who have earthly wisdom and great minds and, and a large intellect, he does, it's not saying that they're, they're completely lost. And it's not only saying that those who are simple-minded and ignorant and naive like children, that they are the only ones who can be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. But what Jesus is saying is that someone who has earthly wisdom, someone who has a great mind and often takes pride in their intellect, that person, to a point, they think that they're too intellectual for God and for the gospel. And we hear it all the time. They say that you have to be stupid to believe that there's a God and to put your trust in something that you can't see. And the outcome, of course, is that their wisdom or their intellect or their knowledge, it makes them self-righteous, self-satisfied and ultimately self-centred. And the will of the Father, says Jesus, is to hide the gospel from them. But when it comes to revealing the kingdom of God and the gospel, Jesus prays that the Father's gracious will is that sinners will know that they don't need to be an intellect to understand the gospel. All you need, says Jesus, is childlike faith. Because the gracious will of the Father is not that we gain this heart of earthly wisdom. The gracious will of the Father is that we fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, the gracious will of the Father, says Jesus, is not that sinners reject the gospel in their pride, 
but come to Jesus in humility because the gospel is Jesus Christ. And sinners, they're to come, as Jesus says, they're to come just like little children. They're to come and we're to encourage them to come, not depending upon anything in themselves, whether it's their intellect or their good works or their righteousness or their abilities. They're to come just as they are to the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. And they're to come depending upon his righteousness and his grace. And like little children with their arms wide open, they're to cry to Jesus for mercy. And you know, that's what Jesus says in the gospel. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Therefore, the gospel is a gracious call to come to Christ in all humility and all dependence upon him. And him alone. And you know in relation to this J.C. Ryle. I mean you can't. You can't go past J.C. Ryle. He talks about these verses. And he speaks about the need to watch against pride. That's the greatest barrier to the gospel he says. And Ryle says let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect. Pride of wealth. Pride in our own goodness. Pride in our own deserts. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we're something, we shall never be saved. Let us pray for and cultivate humility. Let us seek to know ourselves aright and to find out our place in the sight of a holy God. He says the beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are in the way to hell. And to be willing to be taught of the Spirit. There is hardly a sentence of our Lord's so frequently repeated, says Ryle, as he who humbles himself shall be exalted. My friend, the gospel is a gracious call to come humbly. To come humbly before the gospel that is Jesus Christ. But secondly, Jesus explains to us that the gospel is also a godly choice. The gospel is a gracious call, but it's also a godly choice. A godly choice. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, Jesus, he teaches us to have a greater grasp of the gospel of God. And he moves here from praying to his father to preaching. And what Jesus preaches in verse 27 is simply the doctrine of election. And as you know, the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God in salvation, it's a deep mystery that, well, we just can't fathom. Because why are some elect and others are not? Why do some believe and receive the gospel and others do not? Why are some affected by sermons and others aren't? But as Jesus says here, it's all according to the gracious will of the Father. And this is something, you know, we need to be, I need to be reminded of again and again. Election is all of grace. Election is all of grace. The fact that we're here tonight is all of grace. And the fact that God has chosen any of us to be saved is an unmerited act of grace. 
Because the reality is, there is nothing good, good in us that God would choose us. He, God does not see any good in us that he would elect us to, to be his. There's no soundness in us that the Father would think that we are ever worthy of his salvation. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in, in the same condition of total depravity. Where we're in the darkness, we are dead and we are in the dungeon. And yet God the Father, in his mercy and out of his great love for lost sinners, he unconditionally elected some to everlasting life. My friend, our election is all of grace. And tonight the love of the Father is in us. And we love him only because he first loved us. But you know, the wonder is, and this is what should always get to us, there has never been a time where we haven't been loved by God the Father. There has never been a moment since the foundation of this world when Jesus Christ has not viewed you as precious in his sight. And as Paul reminds us, we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We were chosen, we were elected in Christ. We were loved in Christ when the Father and the Son entered into that eternal covenant of redemption. A covenant which the Father, God the Father and God the Son, they agreed that God the Son would die on behalf of the elect. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here. He's actually speaking about this eternal covenant of redemption. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's the eternal covenant of redemption. And in his works, uh, the 17th century English Puritan John Flavel, I think I mentioned this to you before, he has this very imaginative conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And he, it's just an, it's an imaginative conversation. It might have happened, we don't know. But it helps us in our understanding of God's covenant. And he talks, he has this conversation between the Father and the Son as they entered into this eternal covenant of redemption to save the elect. And in this imaginative conversation, Flavel has God the Father speaking about the elect, saying, my son... My son, here is a poor company of miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. What shall be done for these souls? And God the Son, he responds, he says, O my Father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than they perish eternally, I'll be responsible for them as their guarantee I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And Flavel says, the father responds, but my son, my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And God the son says to his father, I am willing, father, let it be so. Though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake 
it for them. And you know, my friend, it's no wonder Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Because the love for you, the love for the elect, it began before the world began. Greater love has no man than this. Because in Christ we have been chosen and loved from before the foundation of the world. All because our election is unconditional. Our election is all of grace. But what's highlighted in Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, I hope you'll buy it, is that many people during the 18th century and up until the present day, he, they have what he calls deformed Calvinism. Deformed Calvinism. Calvinism, Calvinism states... As we were saying that our election, it's unconditional, it's all of grace. It began with God. But a deformed Calvinism states that since the benefits of Christ's death only belong to the elect, then these benefits shouldn't be freely offered to everyone. A deformed Calvinism says that it's only the elect that are going, to, since it's only the elect who are going to be saved, then salvation should only be offered to the elect. A deformed Calvinism says that since it's only the elect that are going to be effectually called by the Holy Spirit and regenerated and justified and adopted and sanctified and eventually glorified, then these benefits should only be offered to those who are in the elect. And Sinclair Ferguson says, when you ask someone with a deformed Calvinism, who are the elect then? They'll say, well, the elect are those who truly repent. <clears throat> but, you know, the outworking of that logic, the outworking of a deformed Calvinism is that they teach that a sinner must forsake sin before they come to Christ. Which is wrong. Because it's in your coming to Christ that you forsake sin. It's in your coming to Jesus that you leave it all behind. Therefore, because the elect are those who, are, who receive the benefits and blessings of salvation, and they're only identified as those who truly repent, then the deformed Calvinist says that salvation should only be offered to them because they have identified themselves as the elect through their repentance. Now, if you can get your head around that, you're doing well. I'll admit that the theology of a deformed Calvinist is def completely deformed. But the reason I raise it it's because many people have this view. Because they're trying to avoid being called an Arminian. Because they think that if you preach the free offer of the gospel to whosoever, then you're not a Calvinist. And you know, they tie themselves in knots because they're trying to get away from the fact that if the benefits of Christ's death only belong to the elect, then these benefits shouldn't be freely offered to everyone. But what a deformed Calvinist misunderstands is that the gospel, it's not a way of life. The gospel is not a religion. The gospel, we're not calling people to come to a doctrine. No, the gospel is a passion. We're calling people to come to a passion, the passion of Jesus Christ. And it's only when sinners come as they are to that passion that they experience then all the benefits and all the blessings of salvation.
which is effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification. My friend, these benefits and blessings of salvation, they're graciously and freely offered to those who come to the passion of Jesus Christ. And you know, this is what the Marrow controversy emphasized. That the gospel is not a pattern to learn, but a person to follow. The gospel is not a pattern to learn, but a person to follow. Therefore, as Boston said, Christ is to be offered to all men, everywhere, without exception or qualification. My friend, the gospel which Jesus preached is the free offer of the gospel to whosoever. And the gospel which the Calvinist preaches is that everyone comes to Christ according, as Jesus says, to the gracious will of the Father. But Christ must be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. We are to offer to sinners the whole Christ because he is the gospel. We're to offer the whole Christ because he is the gospel. It was the early church father, Augustine. He was from the third century. Um, This is probably where Sinclair Ferguson got the name for his book. Augustine said that we're to freely offer to sinners totus Christus, the whole Christ. The whole Christ, without exception. Therefore, if we're going to have a greater grasp of the gospel, then we need to understand that what's on offer to sinners, what's on offer to sinners is not the benefits and blessings of Christ, but Christ himself. We are offering Christ himself because he is the gospel of God. And you know, that's why he commands sinners in verse 28, come to me. He doesn't say come to my doctrine. He doesn't say come to my salvation. He says come unto me. Come to the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what I want us to consider lastly. That the gospel is a great command. The gospel is a gracious call. It's a godly choice. And it's a great command. The gospel is a great command. Jesus says, come to me. Verse 28. Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. As Jesus continues to teach us to have a greater grasp of the gospel of God. He moves from praying to his father. To preaching about the elect. To pleading sinners to come to him. And as we've already discovered. The gospel is not about being saved from sin. The gospel is about having Jesus Christ as your saviour. The gospel is not about escaping hell. The gospel is about Jesus Christ bearing our hell on the cross. The gospel is not about living a holy life. The gospel is about living in union with Christ, the person of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not about just getting to heaven when you die. The gospel is about being with the person of Christ in heaven, which Paul says is far better. You know, there are subtle differences 
But they make all the difference. Because they all emphasize to us that the gospel is not a pattern to learn, but a passion to follow. We're not calling people to a religion. We're not calling people to learn doctrine. We're calling people to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a pattern to learn, but a person to follow. It is Jesus himself. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, they're not qualifications to come to Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that you have to be laboring and heavy laden in life before you can come to him. No, Jesus says, he says this to give to us the reassurance that no one is disqualified from coming to him. Not even those who labor and are heavy laden. No one is disqualified from coming to Christ because from the lips of Jesus, the free offer is to whosoever. As Thomas Boston put it, Christ is to be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. And that's what Jesus did himself. He offered himself to everyone everywhere without exception or qualification. He says, come to me. Come to me. And you know, some people think that when you present the free offer of the gospel to whosoever, that there's this disconnect between grace and salvation. But there isn't. Because if our grasp of the gospel is following the example of Jesus, who is the gospel, then we'll present the fullness and the freeness of God's grace and salvation. There's a disconnect between grace and salvation. The gospel is a gracious call. And as we see here with Jesus, it's a great command to come. If we're presenting to sinners the free offer, we have to see that they will come. They'll come if it's according to the gracious will of the Father. My friend, we're to present the free offer all because the benefits and blessings of salvation, they are from Christ, through Christ, and they're in Christ. We present the offer of coming to the person of Christ. My friend, in order to have a 2020 vision for our community, we have to have, first of all, a passionate pursuit for the glory of God. But secondly, we need a greater grasp of the gospel of God. And from the familiar words of Matthew 11, these verses here, Jesus has reminded us that the gospel is a gracious call. We're to come humbly before the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. But more than that, Jesus said the gospel is a godly choice in which the Father and the Son have graciously elected some to eternal life. But even though there is an elect, the gospel is also a great command. It's a great command because without exception or qualification, sinners are commanded to come to Christ, who is the gospel. And they're commanded to come to Christ so that they'll receive all the benefits and blessings of salvation that come from him, through him, and from our union in him. He, is, he and he alone is the only one who promises to give us rest for our souls. My friend, we have a great gospel. 
The gospel is Jesus Christ. But you know, if our gospel is being hidden by our life or our witness, then as Paul reminds us, it's only being hidden from those who are lost. But you know, if we're going to have this 2020 vision for our community, then we need to have a greater grasp. Yes, there's an elect out there. But that should give us even more passion, more zeal, more determination to go and make this free offer to them, to come to the person that is Jesus Christ. It shouldn't hinder us. should never hinder us. No, the gospel who is Jesus Christ, he must be offered to all men everywhere without exception or qualification. That should be our passionate pursuit as we seek to have a 2020 vision for our community. Well, may the Lord bless these few thoughts to us. <coughs> Let us pray. Well, Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to Thee for the wonder of the Gospel, that the Gospel is not a form of doctrine, but it is the revelation of God Himself, that it is the person of Jesus Christ, and help us, Lord, we pray in our daily lives, or to present Christ, to present him as the answer and the remedy to our ruin. Because, Lord, to whom else can we go? He alone is the words of eternal life. Help us, Lord, to be passionate in our pursuit for the glory of God and for the gospel of God. We confess, Lord, how often we are sidetracked, how often we are detained by the world, the flesh and the devil. But Lord, give to us that vision, a vision of thy glory. And Lord, even a desire to be like Jesus, to know that there is an elect, but to still tell them to come, to come to this Jesus who provides rest for their souls. O oh Lord, bless us then, we pray. Uphold us and guide us and use us for the furtherance of thy kingdom and for the glory of thy name. Remember us, Lord, we ask. Remember others, Lord, who are not with us this evening. Wherever they are, that thou wouldest undertake for them. And Lord, those who have no interest in coming, those in our homes and in our families, O Lord, we long that they would come to thee, that thou wouldest draw them, that it would be the gracious will of the Father to bring them from darkness unto thine own marvellous light. Go before us, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to bring our time to a conclusion by singing the words of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 in the Scottish Psalter, page 357. Psalm 95, we're singing from the beginning down to the verse mark 6. Psalm that reminds us that we are to come. To come and worship the Lord. Because he is the God of our salvation. O come let us sing to the Lord. Come let us everyone. A joyful noise make to the rock of our salvation. Let us before his presence come. With praise and thankful voice. Let us sing psalms to him with grace. And make a joyful noise. Down to the verse marked 6 of Psalm 95. To God's praise. Oh. 
Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore.